everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Today's the first Tuesday of the month, which means it's time for Straight Talk with Dr. Doug Lyle. This is where he answers your questions. We do our best every now and then to take a question from the live chat, but because there's so many questions every now and then, we're forced to do what's called a Dugathon, a three-hour session answering all the backlog, but we do prefer if you can please email them in advance. Uh, thank you so much. And here's Dr. Lyle. How are you? Good, good. How are you doing, AJ? Good, thank you. The holidays yes. coming up. I bet a lot of people are booking sessions with you. Well, I think they, it just, it doesn't seem to change too much, actually. So it just sort of rolls on through. Well, maybe they'll they'll book a lot in January when they've um, succumbed to the pleasure trap and need, sure. to, need to crawl well, out. January, January usually is busy. That's yeah. Right. Well, speaking of the pleasure trap, a lot of the questions are kind of geared toward that and weight loss. And we'll start first with Julia's question. And she said she's confused about the 50-50 plate for maximum weight loss. That's where a lot of influencers show that you've, you know, fill half the plate. I'm sure you know, but I'm talking to the audience, half the plate with non-starchy vegetables and half the plate with starch. So she's confused about that for maximum weight loss, along with ad libitum eating. Can volume eaters eat too much starch and are lower glycemic starches better for weight loss? Um, I think that there, there, I've seen in my career one person who was a very, uh, very odd, you know, voracious eater. And I've, I've seen exactly one. So you're, you're talking about somebody who's, who's looked at, you know, three or 4,000 eaters in my career. And one of them, one, uh, could eat too much starch. It's the only one I've ever seen. So the, um, that, that, was an, that was an odd looking character in terms of uh, his behavior. Uh, generally speaking, that gen we, we would look at, the, the weight problem in the following way. That <clears throat> the weight problem really has uh, effectively two components to it. Uh, component number one is that there's individual differences in uh, propensity to gain weight. Uh, that genetics is, is an enormous factor in individual differences that you see. The second component is that despite individual differences in genetics, the um, <clears throat> you're not going to see excess weight on an animal of any species unless it's eating a diet that's unnaturally rich in terms of calorie density. So it doesn't matter if we're talking about chickens or if we're talking about uh, koala bears or people, it's gonna be the same fundamental variable. And that variable is what is the calories per pound? So when they fatten up pigs for market, they put molasses in their corn. Uh, the corn is 400 calories a pound. The molasses is 1,800 calories a pound. So by doctoring up the corn and making it unnaturally rich in terms of calorie density, that's how you put fat on a pig. That's how they do it. That's one way that one set of pig farmers do. There's probably different ways now. The... Um, but anyway, the point is the only way you're going to get ex excess fat on a human is you're going to feed them a diet that's richer than their natural history. And their natural history looks like it's probably somewhere 
around six to 700 calories a pound on average. So we wouldn't expect to see people overweight if they're eating a diet that we say 600 calories a pound. Um, potatoes are about 400 calories a pound. So therefore, uh, and non-starchy vegetables, are, I mean, or excuse me, yeah, are 200 calories a pound. So a plate 50-50 of half potatoes and half asparagus, uh, that averages out to 300 calories a pound. That's vastly lower than the species is going to be designed to be eating. So therefore, that's going to be a, a ruthless and rapid weight loss kind of semi-starvation diet. Now, what if we make it just potatoes and no asparagus? Okay, well, then we're at 400 calories a pound, which means we are on an extremely lean diet that it's a near starvation diet. And that is a very rapid weight loss diet. So the idea that we're going to overeat on the potatoes and that that's going to cause us to gain weight is is a mistaken concept. So the um, that's a uh, we hear things bunched together like carbohydrates versus fats versus protein. The the truth of the matter is is that the weight problem doesn't have to do with too much fat, too much protein, or too much carbohydrate. It has to do with a reduction of fiber and water out of the diet. Uh, the diet is made out of five macronutrients plus of thousands of little micronutrients that don't have any influence on satiety at all. So it's really five. The, um, and so the problem with people's excess weight is that two things have been removed from their diet that were naturally there. Those two things are fiber and water. Okay. Fiber has fiber and water have no calories in them. So if you remove a major component, in fact, the dominant component of food, if you remove the two major macronutrients of food, you are shrinking the food and leaving the calories. So that's what oil is. Oil used to be corn. Okay. But then what did we do? We took that corn and took it off the, off the husk. And then what we did was we took the, the corn kernels and then we processed the corn kernels to get rid of all the fiber and all the water and all the carbohydrate and all the protein. And we just concentrated the fat. And then we got 4,000 calorie pound fat. And then we poured that on our salad or fry our eggs in it or whatever the heck anybody does. But the point is it's 4,000 calories a pound, which is extraordinarily rich compared to the six or 700 calories a pound that the organism was designed to eat. So therefore anything you fry it in just massively increase the calorie density of your diet. Okay. The, uh, if instead we took out of that corn, we took just the corn, the, uh, the, the sugar. Okay. So we had, we had that, well, that's 1800 calories a pound because there's no fiber and there's no water and there's no fat and there's no protein in it. So therefore, now we've just concentrated by getting rid of the, the, uh, the water and the fiber, we now have pure sugar. That's 1,800 calories a pound. Well, if we put that on something, we just massively increase the calorie density. So you see that the problem isn't um, the calories in the food. It's what, what has happened to the water and fiber that was supposed to be there. And so uh, we get rid of the water and the fiber in food by processing the food. And uh, that, that's how that's done. When you do that, you now concentrate the food 
so that now we sail the calorie density of the food up well past the six or 700 calories a pound that the organism was designed for. As long as we're leaving the food intact, and by the way, the exceptions, there's a few exceptions to natural food. In other words, uh, the starchy uh, or the starchy vegetables, uh, the 400 calorie a pound, rice, beans, potatoes, et cetera, those things uh, aren't the richest food that human beings would have eaten. They would have eaten other rich foods to get their averages up to six or 700. But they wouldn't have eaten very much of it because you can't add that very much of the richer food and uh, and wind up you know, at, at six or 700 calories a pound. So the long answer to your question, which of course this was an extremely long answer and comprehensive by design, is that no, you cannot, you do not need to be worried about how much starch is on your plate. If you want to fill every one of your plates and not eat a single vegetable, if all you wanted to eat is rice, beans, potatoes, you will lose weight if you're overweight. That is because the average calorie density of those foods is only about 400 calories a pound, and it is beneath the average calorie density that the species was designed for. So for goodness sakes, do not worry about overeating the starches. Yeah, it's not a duty for you to then try to reduce the calorie density of a starch-based diet by eating a bunch of vegetables. Eat the vegetables because you enjoy the vegetables. Don't, don't eat them out of a sense of duty that you're attempting to dilute your diet. You do not need to dilute your diet. We need to just stay out of the peanut butter. That's the problem. Okay, but you know, I hear it too. I overeat on starch. I overeat on potatoes. Yeah, let me. Uh, people, uh, I I, ha I hear this constantly, and the reason is that there are several reasons for this, AJ. And whenever I start cross-examining someone in a session, it's not too long before I find out why they're thinking this. Um, when people eat, they look down at their stomach and it pooches out and they think that that means that they're fat. That isn't fat. That's just you. That's the equivalent of this. Okay. My cheeks didn't get fatter. I just had air in my cheeks. Okay. You don't, you don't get fat from filling up your stomach and having your stomach pooch out. That isn't fat. That's your stomach filled. Okay. So that's one thing. Second of all, you aren't getting fat when you eat a bunch of potatoes and then you step on the scale the next day and you're two pounds heavier. You did not gain two pounds uh, of tissue at all. You didn't gain any pounds of tissue. You probably lost an ounce of fat. Your, your body composition changes at most about one ounce a day. Your weight can fluctuate three or four pounds a day. So this tells us obviously that the fluctuations that you see in the scale from day to day are not body composition fluctuations, okay? Everybody that's ever been in weightlifting knows it's exceedingly difficult to gain a pound of muscle. That, that takes quite a lot of diligent effort to accomplish that, okay? It's also true that it takes quite a bit of diligent effort to gain a pound of fat. You're like, well, no, it doesn't. I can gain it in two days. It's like, no, you can't. That is not possible. The average American woman eating crap with both hands starting at 16 years of age gains about two pounds a year for 20 years. Two pounds a year, okay? That's 32 ounces in 12 months. So the average American woman who is getting fat over her lifetime, 
uh, that person is is uh, gaining about two and a half uh, ounces a month. Okay, so divide that by two two and a half two and a half ounces by thirty days. That's a tenth of an ounce. That's what's happening. So the typical body composition changes that are taking place of people are on the order of a tenth of an ounce a day. Okay, so that's why the actual body composition changes that are taking place when you're in a weight loss program are not going to be discernible day to day or week to week. They're only discernible month to month. That's when you can pick it up on an extremely careful scale they you you could you know with really good measurements you can pick up you know uh a weight loss on a month to month basis you cannot pick it up on a week to week basis so um it's there, there's too much random variation so people believe that oh no i eat too much starch i got fat i ate a bunch of potatoes and rice and beans and spaghetti and i'm three pounds heavier than i was on tuesday so therefore you know last tuesday so therefore i'm gaining weight no, you're not. You're not having any body composition changes at all. All that happened is that relative to where you were last Tuesday, you're sitting on more glycogen in your liver and in your muscles and more, more fluid inside of you and more poop. Okay. And tomorrow morning, we could, we could cause this whole thing to change dramatically. We put you on juice for about 14 hours and have you dehydrate a little bit. And, uh, and then suddenly, voila, you know, you've lost three pounds. So th this is the, the uh, people, of course, making incorrect inferences about what's happening in their body because they're using the only metric that they know how to use, which is the scale. So they don't understand that the scale is completely useless. It's actually worse than useless. It, it fosters superstition. It is a false feedback system. Okay, it is not measuring what you're attempting to measure. And so therefore, people come in absolutely convinced that if they eat starches, they gain weight. It's like, well, yeah, if you if I eat two pounds of potatoes right now, I'm going to gain weight. I won't gain any fat. I won't gain any body tissue, but I'll gain weight, you know, in the same way as if I put those potatoes over my shoulder or held them in my hands and stepped on the scale, I would, quote, gain weight, too. So you've got to understand what we're concerned about. We're not concerned about what's the perturbations of your scale. We're concerned about the alterations of the chemistry, the, the, the composition of your body. And that, that those changes are subtle and slow. And therefore we have to understand that our inferences about what's causing us to be fat are very, if we're, if we're looking at, the, at the, the scale and we're trying to decide things that way, we're lost. Okay, so we've got we've got to outsmart our intuition now. That's why people think starches. They, that's why they think they overeat on starches. Oh, I ate so much and look at my stomach. I can't fit in my pants. Well, of course, you just ate two pounds of food for God's sakes. Okay, so that doesn't make you fat. That makes your stomach pooch up. Believe me, when anybody takes any photography in a bikini shoot, those people haven't eaten. Okay, those people, those women are up there hungry as hell because there's nothing in those stomachs. That's how you get those stomachs looking like that. Trust me, if we start fed those people a decent meal, their stomachs wouldn't look flat like that. Guarantee it.
Well, so she doesn't have to worry about eating lower calorie density starches like the winter squashes, which are about 200 calories per pound versus beans that are about 600 calories per pound. Yeah, absolutely not. Thank you. All right. All right, switching gears. This is from Anonymous. Is there a problem when sexual maturity precedes emotional maturity? I didn't know about the problem with the hormones in dairy products, and I regret I fed milk to my children when they were younger. Hence, my daughter got her period very early at the age of 10. She is now 13 and now exhibits what I feel is disturbing hypersexualized behavior. How do I rein her in? Um, none of that happened because of her diet. Okay, so the, all you're looking at is differences in maturation speed of people. Uh, I, I've read people thinking, uh, even some very reputable people thinking that diet has made some substantial impact on, uh, on fostering or um, uh, facilitating sexual maturity. This is not true. Okay, so they, they've looked at data that was uh, sort of incorrectly using reports from the 1940s, 50s, and 60s about when girls said they reached sexual maturity. Well, believe me, you know, if, if you're some girl in the 1950s, you're not telling the truth. Okay, so those surveys looking back 50, 60, 70 years are completely sociologically different than the surveys that you have now. So the sexual maturation differs from human to human. Um, it would be possible, I suppose, to facilitate sexual maturity if you aggressively gave people injections of sex hormones. Uh, pro pro probably all kinds of bizarre things could happen. But a diet that includes dairy products is not going to be responsible uh, uh, for, for facilitating this. Your daughter, whatever the hypersexual things is that you're observing, these are innate characteristics to her personality. So that's uh, that's just who she is. And uh, obviously, from the standpoint of what is beneficial for the human's life with respect to sexual maturity and emotional maturity, it would be uh, it would be ideal. Uh, if, if those things somehow matched according to our arbitrary standards. But the truth of the matter is, is that human beings are not designed to ideally fit into any kind of specific society. They're designed to survive and reproduce. And so therefore, it's going to turn out that some people are, are reproducing at age 14 and 15. Uh, this was, you know, uh, utterly known and typical, the kings and queens of Europe. Uh, were reproducing at age 15 uh, across history. So the uh, so keep keep these sorts of things in mind. Now we we understand. Hey, you know what? Let's like get a little schooling in. Let's let's learn how to do a little bit of arithmetic for goodness sakes. Let's teach you a few skills. Maybe we'll get to send you to college. In other words, let's just slow the the roll on this. Okay, understandable, reasonable. I think society-wide an intelligent concept. However, don't think that that matches the, the, the natural maturation process of any, every individual because it doesn't. And so uh, your 13-year-old just happens to be a, uh, a hot engine and hot engines exist in the world 
And uh, there are massive differences. I can remember uh, when I was in eighth grade, finding out that some of the eighth graders were actually already sexually active. I was absolutely flabbergasted. Uh, we might say, oh, that's happening today because it's wild today. Oh, no, it was wild in 1972. Okay, So uh, we can go back what, however 50 years. And I was watching the same thing, but it was a subset uh, of the population. It was probably 5% or less of the population in my junior high school, uh, probably 3%, uh, whatever it was. But it was it was the kids that were, you could see physically, but they were sexually much more mature than the average kid that, that was 13. So, yeah, that's the story. And uh, uh, we, as I say, when raising kids... There's two things I'm worried about, and I'm not worried about anything else. I'm worried about pregnancy, and I'm worried about drug addiction. Okay, I couldn't care less about any other problem, uh, obviously, other than their own depression and you know their, their own internal suffering. Right? I would care about that, too. But as a parent, looking at their behavior and whether they achieve anything in school, you know, all that kind of thing, I'm not worried about any of that stuff. Uh, whether they behave in class, couldn't care less. It's only two things I care about uh, that can be life-altering issues, pregnancies and drug addiction. So your, as far as I'm concerned, your job as a parent is to do what you can to do to steer your kids away from those two uh, mistakes. And as far if you if you steer your kid through those two mistakes through their 18th birthday, as far as I'm concerned, you get an A plus as a parent. If you don't, it doesn't mean that you're a bad parent. It just means that you you had a tough you had a tough one that you were trying to raise one that was susceptible to those two potential traps and uh, that's going to go for a girl who happens to have a hot engine at thirteen. Wow, Dr. Lyle, I don't want to ever disagree with you, but she did post some links to the medical literature um, where they did do studies and they did say that milk intake and total dairy consumption is associated with early menarche. Associated. Mm. Okay. So, uh, and I'm not, we'd have to look at and see, uh, I doubt very seriously whether that that research will hold up to my scrutiny. So the, um, I think that, that the, um, it would be very difficult to do that research in, in the following way. So there are, there are different um, races around the world that actually have different uh, responses to uh, milk products. And it's gonna turn out that they mature at different times. So that is a, that is a variable that is actually probably not being considered in that research for one thing. That's a major issue. So second of all, it's also true that it would be very difficult to find a cohort of people that are not drinking milk. Okay. So in the United States, basically everybody is exposed to this. So now uh, I think that that research, that person could send me that research and I'd be happy to look at it. I have looked at that research before. And I found that claims that there was multiple year changes actually then shrunk to less than one year. Okay, so I've read things that said, oh, there's a three or four year change. It turns out, no, that is a catastrophic mistake that isn't even close. Uh, then the later research that I looked at that was better research 
had it shrunk down to less than 12 months difference. And then even within that, they were not controlling for racial differences and the and the issues involved in differences in milk consumption uh, between races uh, because of lactose intolerance, there could be substantial differences in milk consumption. So that's a problem. That research is confounded with other variables. And um, yeah, so I, I don't think it's accurate. Okay, I, I will send it to you. And yeah. glad to look at whatever it is, I can tell you this. <clears throat> Even if it's true, it's trivial. Okay, so in other words, even if you find an effect, that effect is going to be trivial. It will not. Uh, it will not be a major effect. Like thinking that you fed your kids milk and then they they were two years early. No, not going to happen. Okay, so uh, it is not uncommon at all for girls to to start their periods at uh, nine, ten, eleven years old. That's natural random variation. You know, not not on the middle of the bell curve, but it is a it is a common phenomenon. So, yeah, happy to look at that research and take a look at see what effect sizes they're reporting and see what what their databases are. Yeah, but I have looked at that and I can tell you that what I saw was both trivial and suspicious at the same time. It's funny, uh, one of the plant-based doctors, much to his daughter's um, embarrassment, used to boast about how they didn't get their periods till like they were late teenagers, which, and he believes that's when we were supposed to get them much later. Yeah. Not true. Okay. So in, in, uh, in, I, I've seen much misreported commentary on this issue. And uh, anyway, the point is, is it's, uh, it's, it's uninformed. It's okay. misinformed. But have you ever heard anything that it's better to get it later in terms of disease risk, can cancer? There's that's been going around. No, too. I don't think so. I, I think that the um, yeah, a, a big thing that a lot of people have missed out in, in looking at these issues is that you'll find differences in breast cancer that will uh, be a, a major factor is how many children have you had. Okay, so uh, that that's actually a substantive uh, correlate. There's, there's many correlates that we want to look at that have to do with estrogen exposure, et cetera. But the, um, uh, th there are, you know, there's substantial individual differences in people and there's differences in major population genotypes okay, around the world. These things don't all happen at the same rate for, for people, uh, depend upon the, your continent of origin. So those are, those are major variables in human nature that uh, go typically unexamined in, a, in, in, many, uh, in many investigations. Uh, the investigators are either unaware or, or politically sensitive to the idea that they better stay away from that variable. But the truth is those variables can be very, very important in explaining the differences that people see. Thanks. Back to eating. <laughs> this is from Renee. Dr. Lyle, you're the only expert I know who often talks about the ego trap. Many of the other ones promote abstinence. In other words, complete compliance of an SOS-free diet. Yeah. Being a diehard fan of yours, I have to wonder, isn't abstinence going to backfire and put us in the ego trap? Um, just so that people know what the ego trap is. Ego trap is when the the individual uh, the individual is running a cost benefit analysis on whether or not to attempt to try to achieve something, and one of the reasons we try to achieve something is to to gain esteem from other people. 
So the um, that that's most of what it is that people are doing most of the time is they're attempting to do something to gain esteem from other people. Um, esteem meaning regard, respect, status, etc. That's we care about what other people think of us, and so there are a, a great deal of our actions have to do with attempting to uh, make demonstrations in order to uh, of various kinds in order to gain esteem. So the um, now, so if we're we're attempting to accomplish something that would be potentially admirable or noteworthy, there's a um, there's a possibility that we may fail. So you can understand that. Yeah, I can remember, I mean, you could you think of a million examples of this, but one of them will, would be in gym class um, doing pull-ups on the pull-up bar. Okay, So people are going to be able to see whether or not you can do it or go over the high jump or anything like this. So your, your, uh, your fitness or your capabilities are being judged by observation or being compared to other people. So therefore, these are important little processes that take place constantly. Um, and so it's going to turn out that other people will, uh, after they know you, they're going to have some expectations about what they think you are capable of doing. Now, you have inside of you um, knowledge of what those expectations are, because people will signal the expectations that they have for you. So as a result of that, you carry within you differing perspectives on whatever it is that this display or whatever accomplishment that you're attempting to do. You have a, if you were 100% sure that you can do it, then you have absolutely no anxiety and have nothing to gain by doing this, other than if they don't think that you can do it, but you're sure you can do it, then you are excited to demonstrate to them that they're that their misperceptions of your uncertainty and ability are wrong. The guy who is, knows that he can do it, but other people think he can't do it, is excited to do this. It's an exciting process. Okay. If other on the other end, if people expect that you can do it and you think you cannot do it, then you should be avoiding this thing. Your mind runs a cost-benefit analysis and says. I could lose a lot of status here if I if I fail to live up to expectation. This is the ego trap. The ego trap is a situation where we have assessed the expectations of the village and we we've figured out that that we may not be able to live up to as high as those expectations. And now we are have obvious and reasonable motivation to, to avoid this process, okay? To try to step around it, to quit, to um, display that we are not trying. Or very often we will try in a very half-baked fashion. Uh, so we will not go all in and really try because if we go all in and really try and we fail, then they will have to downgrade their opinion of our latent abilities, okay? So, this is the ego trap. And when it's something that we would like to accomplish, um, to be in the ego trap is pretty tough position. 
So parents, coaches, friends, counselors, therapists, very easy can put, can put people in the ego trap and not, not know it and not understand what they're doing. So yeah, you can do this. You've got this. It's like, well, what if I only think that there's a 35% chance that I've got this? And you're telling me that, oh, I, you're sure I can, I've got this. That's an ego trap communication. Okay. And some parent that just thinks, well, what am I supposed to do? I could see that my kid's not that confident. Shouldn't I be giving them, giving them confidence? And the answer is no, you should not be giving them confidence. Okay. You, what we need to be doing is we need to be diffusing the ego trap transmissions. So our attitude should be, well, maybe you can and maybe you can't. We just have to see what happens. Ah, very different communication. Okay. So now it's like, well, they don't have that much to lose. Uh, if we, we, we assure everybody that they can do it and we expect them to be able to do it, shouldn't be a problem at all. No problem. You know, it's like you can just be certain that you are pushing that person into a position where it's not worth trying. So that's uh, if we set the expectations too high, we can count on ego trap motivational processes, basically deterring people from making efforts. This is part of the problem with an abstinence model for addiction. So the um, so the problem is, is like, how, how do we thread the needle between certain things like let's take heroin, for example. So the problem is if we said, well, you know, I'll tell you what the goal is here. The goal, the goal is for you to ultimately get off heroin, but you know, to just go get off altogether, that that that's you know probably asking too much. So let's just go, let's go, let's start cutting this down by 10% a week. The problem is, is that that is such an addictive type of a substance that the use itself causes a supernormal cascade of reward, and it's hard for the individual to keep out of it. So that that means that by necessity for certain things, the only reasonable solution is abstinence. Okay. That's not true with food. The food is not heroin and it's not crack cocaine. So as a result, it is very possible for people to do a diet that's 80% good, you know, a hell of a lot better than the one that they're doing now. Okay, so most of the people, almost everybody that has ever touched this space um, that, and has benefited has not gone 100% of anything. Very few people, probably less than 1%. I, I've talked to some of those people. So AJ's one of those people. Alan's one of those people. Those people exist and they walk the earth, but they represent a very small percentage of the people that have benefited. Okay, so... Uh, a great many people that have benefited have been people that have done an intermediate level of change of their dietary uh, processes, and they have made great benefits from them. Okay, so the uh, I, I remember being slightly startled one day sitting down with uh, T. Colin Campbell and Paul Wasselston, and I don't know what it was. They were in some little celebratory process, and they both had a beer. <laughs> and and I'm looking at them and and uh, you know just I'm somebody that doesn't drink and never did drink and Colin's looking at me and he says hey this is vegan you know what I mean 
it's all, it's all made out of uh, whatever it is, barley or whatever they, whatever, however they make the stuff. I don't know how they do it. But the point is, is that he was he was completely relaxed and unselfconscious, and so so was Caldwell. <laughs> the uh, from I, I don't know how how unselfconscious they would have been had Alan been there. But it, it's Doug for God's sake. So they're not worried about Doug. So the point of it all is, is that you know, are, are yet you you make a point in this question, and the answer is yes. If you put the bar too high and you put the expectations too high, you will, beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you if you talk to a hundred people, some of those people are going to be in a ego trap dilemma that will cause them to go exactly the opposite direction, and they will kick over the table and they will not try. Okay. A few of those people will seize that concept and they will have the benefit of if they go completely 100 uh, percent act, you know, write down our, our how we would how we would optimally design this and get away from all supernormal stimuli with respect to food, they will optimally sensitize their palate uh, to, to their natural history, and they should be very happy eating completely clean food. In other words, you can do that. It can be done. The fact that it can be done, and we reported that it could be done, and we basically explained this in the Pleasure Trap, that is truth, okay? Uh, however, if you read the Pleasure Trap carefully, you'll see in a footnote that I introduced the concept of the Ego Trap. And the uh, it was just dawning on me 20 years ago uh, when we published, you know, as we went to press, this is a problem. Okay, so this was in the early 2000s, and I'm I'm noticing this at True North. I'm noticing this with repeat clients. I'm noticing it at the McDougal program. I'm noticing people feeling intimidated out of even facing this problem at home and thinking that they can really do it because the bar is so high, and they know themselves, and they know that they're not going to be able to accomplish this. And so they can feel essentially an all-or-nothing decision looming. I'm either going to do this or I'm not going to do it. And I don't think I'm going to do it. I don't think I can do it. So it looks like I'm not going to do it. And that's when I came out with multiple different uh, lectures through the McDougal programs over those years. The Continuum of Evil, I think was probably the first one where I'm basically saying, we need to look at this as a gradation process. Okay, We do not want to look at this as an all or nothing prescription. That is a mistake. Okay, The um, now, you, you might say, well, if I take one slip, then it sinks my whole ship. Okay, you are rare. That is not typical of human beings with respect to food. It's typical of human beings with respect to crack cocaine, cigarettes, alcoholics. It's not respect to alcohol. 19 out of 20 people wouldn't have any problem if you said to them, well, you've been drinking a glass of wine every night for 10 years. How about if you stop it? Could you do it? Maybe like, yeah, I could, but I don't want to. I said, well, let's do it. Let's see if you can. Let's put some money on it. Take a thousand dollars on it for the next two weeks and see if you can do it. No problem. Not a problem. They are not an alcoholic. Okay, but an alcohol. So therefore, they can come and go with respect to the alcohol. Okay, the um, uh, whereas someone else, uh, the one in twenty people that has the alcoholic gene. That person can't. Okay, so there are going to be some people with respect to with 
respect to kids that way. There's going to be people who their their only path out of this uh, pleasure trap with food is going to be hardcore. But that's not going to be typical. So most people can find an intermediate ground somewhere and they can move that ground around depending upon what their own personal motivation is, what their goals are, what they, they feel like they need to accomplish. So outstanding question. You better believe it. The uh, we, we want to understand that this is a continuum of processes here, not all or nothing. And that's uh, and we should, you know, everybody needs to aim at some level of achievement that they want to do and understand that there's different levels of, of uh, excellence and compliance that are required to get there. Can I kind of summarize some of the things I heard and like sure. to make them easier for me and maybe other people to understand? Because I once heard you say that the pleasure trap and the ego trap were opposing forces. Yes. Like, sort of like a Chinese finger trap that yes. we, we used to get at birthday parties. Yes. That the diet that will get people out of the ego trap, or at least some people, sometimes can put them back in the pleasure trap. Right. So if I understand you correctly, abstinence is okay if somebody can do it. That yeah. people because because what I see happening is people that can do it are kind of shamed and ridiculed, like me and Alan. And the only reason we do it is because it's easy for us. I mean, I, you know what I mean? Sure. But 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 if they can do abstinence, or you, I've even heard you sometimes ask people to do a trial of it just to yeah. see. And um, if they can do it, it can be helpful. But if it's going to get them into the ego trap, then they shouldn't even maybe consider it. Right. In other words, the. There's nothing wrong with, for example, saying, hey, I want to get an A in trigonometry. Okay. Now, it's a problem if your dad says, not only can you get an A in trigonometry, you should get an A in tri trigonometry, and anything less than an A in trigonometry is a failure. Okay. That's a screwed up message. Okay. So the truth is, is that most people won't get A's in trigonometry depending upon who the teacher is. So therefore, you know, we, we are thinking, hey, listen, you may want to try to get an A in trigonometry, do all your homework, ask questions, get some help with, with the tutors, but you may wind up with a C in trigonometry. That may be the best that you could that you could potentially do. Or, or you may say to yourself, you know what, I might be able to get an A in trigonometry, but I don't want to put in that much work. And I'm pretty smart. I'm just going to take a B minus. That's all I need. Fine. There's nothing in the world wrong with taking a B minus in trigonometry. So the uh, so, it, but if a person says, "Yeah, but I'd really like to get A results," well, if you want to get A results in trigonometry, you're going to have to put in the work to get an A. There's no way around it. Okay, and so sometimes that means you're going to have to study two hours every night for the semester and be on top of everything and not even get get behind one day of homework or you get lost. It's like, well, I don't know if I'm willing to do that. Well, that's that's the requirements. Okay, so that that that's how I look at this thing. So the um, yeah, Chinese finger trap. It's exactly right. what it is. Right, because what I see is a lot of people that want the A but don't even want to do B work. They kind of want to do like C and D work, and that's a little bit unrealistic. Yeah, yeah, that that's called uh, Joe Carbo. Fifty years ago, used to write these big ads in the L.A. Times called Lazy Man's Way to, way to Riches. <laughs> it's all about how you can make a fortune selling stuff out of your garage and blah, blah. It's like, 
the 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 hilarious thing somebody actually did a expose of this and they said Joe Carbo was an unbelievably hardworking, ferocious organizing entrepreneur. It wasn't lazy at all. <laughs> you can say it is, but that doesn't make it so. So anyway, yeah. But, but you're, things- you're of course we would all like to be do the lazy man's way to riches, and we'd like to do the lazy man's way to weight loss. But the truth of the matter is that no. Uh, major difficult achievements require major, you know, major commitment and effort. That's just how life is. But for addictive substances that aren't food, like cigarettes, alcohol, and hardline drugs, is the abstinence-based model the best for most people? Yes, that that's because the the substance itself. That there's differing degrees of how hyper rewarding the stimuli is. Okay, so we can tell that. A little sugar on your oatmeal is not as hyper rewarding as a chocolate bar. You can tell the difference. Okay. So you can tell that, okay, I'm not, you know, I I might only eat half a bowl of large oatmeal, even if it's got some sugar sprinkled on the top. It's not, it's not like powering its way past my satiety mechanisms, et cetera. But if we have a box of seized candy there, I can be full and still eat 10 pieces of the stuff. Because it's it's so hyper rewarding, it's pushing its way past normal regulation mechanisms. So these drugs are are you know many times the the dopamine and endorphin intensity uh, of of food. So they can they can take people right off the cliff, and they do. So that's a that's a different level of problem of the same type. Great, thank same you. Type of problem, but it's different different difference in intensity thanks so much yes. from going from food to sex to food back right. to sex right. okay this is also from anonymous uh dear dr delisle frankly i've never been all that interested in sex and my libido has waned more as i've gotten older coupled with the fact that sex has gotten painful and i all often get utis i'm now on medication to help with this but still i really don't enjoy intercourse and i don't see what all the fuss is about how do we negotiate this in a marriage so that both parties are happy well um the there's many quite a few pieces to this this is again about abstinence versus moderation isn't it except in the bedroom instead of the kitchen i would say um generally speaking okay uh generally speaking when uh any like, let's suppose I have a, uh, my best friend likes to play racquetball. Okay. And let's suppose that I have a bad knee and that I, you know, I would, you know, I was never very interested in racquetball, but I was a little, I kind of liked it a little bit. But the truth of the matter is, I've got a bad knee and I really, you know, it, it's painful to play racquetball. But my, he really likes to play racquetball. And it's like, well, sorry, we no longer have an overlapping interest there. Okay. So that is the, as far as I'm concerned, that, that is the correct analysis of that problem. So our relationships are what they are is they are, we don't see them this way, but if we look down deeply enough and carefully enough, we're going to find that relationships are trade processes. So we, 
interact with each other in trade processes really in order to secure resources for survival and reproductive process. Now, so uh, if we look down through romance and sex, we are finding that both parties on the other side of a heterosexual relationship pre-menopause, we find out that that motivation is all about reproducing DNA. That that's and that, that we DNA has orchestrated animal nervous systems to find that process under the proper conditions to be really the most exquisite, most intense, pleasurable process that exists in the animal's life. Okay, uh, as you'd expect, like that's literally the actions needed to reproduce the DNA. You would expect it to be uh, exquisitely pleasurable. Fair enough. That's what you would expect. You would also find out that if the conditions are not optimal, then everything is going to change. So the, the questioner has several aspects here. So first of all, uh, echoing the question that we heard earlier about the young girl who seems, quote, hypersexual at 13. This is hypersexual, according to him, by what standard? Answer, well... Possibly the kid is. Kid might be sitting at the 95th percentile for nat natural libido level, certainly at this time in life. The uh, people differ tremendously. One thing that, that people do is they tend to try to figure out uh, what the middle of the bell curve seems to look like, and anything that deviates from that, there's something wrong with it. Okay. So, uh, you know, having read enough of the medical sexual literature, I have to tell you, it, it gets pretty irritating for me to read that literature. Um, I, I've been, I've, I've had uh, enough interaction with enough of my feminist colleagues. Uh, so Dr. Jen Hawk, you know, has for years sensitized me and, and others that if you read a lot of this literature, it's, they've got a very paternalistic there's a there's a phrase Jen uses the patriarchy. <laughs> there's there's so, the 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 shadow of the patriarchy. Okay, i.e., we have postmenopausal women that are not uh, that quote they have a problem with low libido. Well, that's not a problem with low libido. That's a feature of the organism's design. For goodness sakes, the uh, your you would expect that to happen. The you you now have a situation. What what is the survival and reproductive profit that the organism would be designed by nature to continue that process? The answer is there wouldn't be. So therefore, we would expect that there would be a sharp decline in libido in women postmenopause, and there is. And yet, if you read the medical literature looking to treat it. You're going to act, act as if this is some kind of dysfunction. And it's like, no, it's not a dysfunction. It's a natural consequence of that person's situation when it comes to survival and reproductive process. Okay, now, the, uh, also, you will find medical literature going to treat mostly women with respect to, quote, low sexual desire. It's like, well, okay, let's just back up a minute. Okay, there, there are three reasons that I can think of um, wh why there might be low sexual desire in in a in a in a human or animal 
that in this in the the, the male doesn't go through menopause. So the male can shouldn't have other than a general decline in function wouldn't have a reduction significant reduction in their sex drive, but you'd expect it in the human female because of the menopausal uh, processes that take place. The uh, by the way, menopause is not a typical thing that you see in the animal kingdom, but you see it in humans probably for the following reason. And that is uh, our ancestors made an evolutionary deal that if you're gonna be this smart, um, you're gonna have to be born with a brain that's gonna take years to load a lot of data in it. And so therefore you're, uh, you're gonna be born and you're, that, you're gonna make that brain so damn big that the rest of the body is just tiny and incompetent at birth. And um, so if you look at you know, a horse, um, a horse is up and running in an hour, half an hour, some damn thing, and can run just about as well as its mother. The um, that that's necessary. That's the way a horse works. And in one year, that horse is almost full grown, ready to roll. And in three years, that thing's winning the triple crown. For goodness sakes, okay. So you take a look at uh, at a friend of mine that had two girls. Uh, and when one, the older one was four and the younger one was two, uh, she called me up. It's Christmas time. And she said, I came down Christmas morning and I looked over at those two little kids at the tree. And she said, oh, man, they're going to need help for a long time. <laughs> That's right. It's 20 years. OK, so. That child's not very capable of negotiating life very effectively for a dozen years. So it's going to need all kinds of help and supervision or else it's going to do some stupid things and wind up dead. So therefore, um, parenting is a very long term process. So therefore, it doesn't make sense for a 55 year old to be having a child because the truth of the matter is that 55 year old in nature is very likely not to make it to 67. And 67 would be sort of the minimum. So therefore, what humans did was they shut off the female uh, in her early 40s. And then we wind up with an intergenerational transfer of energy towards reproductive problems. It's what we call the grandmother hypothesis. So you have your last kid at 40, you have some other kids coming online. Average woman would have had given birth eight times and probably four of those uh, children live to reproduce. Uh, and so th then it, what's going to happen is, is there's going to be little kids around and your last child that you have at 40. Then when you're 55, you know, your job is fully taking up on the next 15 years, raising that child. And now at 55 years old, that those children are having children and now you invest your time and energy not in your own sex and romance process but in aiding and abetting your your grandchildren's survival this is clearly how human beings are designed there is no other species that is so incredibly interested in the reproductive problems of their offspring none there's nothing that even remotely resembles humans human beings are leaning over their teenage and young adult children's mating choices and attempting to influence them in ways that their parents think are better than the kid's judgment. Okay, it, so we can see how highly invested uh, humans are in subsequent the next generation after the one that they gave birth to.
they're incredibly invested in this. So that so you're seeing this the natural psychology, particularly of women, is you know menopausal. I'm not very interested in sex and romance processes. Not only that, biologically, it doesn't work very well. They are they are don't don't lubricate easily. So now if they've got a spouse who still finds them attractive and still wants to have sexual processes, a lot of times it's painful. And then what do we do? The medical profession says, oh, you've got low sexual desire and poor lubrication. So we're going to fix you. It's like, well, there's nothing wrong with me. <laughs> okay. So we see sort of the patriarchy. And at the root of this, we, we have many wide social, psychological, and economic and historical integration processes here that are basically saying this, this thing that was supposed to, was working fine at 24, what do we do now that we're 64, okay? We have a conflict. Somebody wants to play racquetball and can still play, and the other person can't and isn't interested. Now, what do you do? Well, those are interesting things for people to negotiate. But to call it the fault or haywireness of the individual who doesn't want to play racquetball, that doesn't make any sense to me. Okay. So the um, so those are those are problems for couples to try to figure out how they're going to negotiate that. But the solution isn't to drug the female with some bizarre chemicals. To, to somehow wake up a sexual desire that isn't naturally there. Now, so there would be three reasons why, for example, an individual might have low sexual desire that I could think of. The, um, the first reason is <clears throat> that biologically, they, on a bell curve, they, are, they don't have a hot engine. Now it's gonna turn out <clears throat> that uh, nature should make it that there should be natural variation in how hot people's engines are naturally. And it should be the case that males should have quite a bit hotter engine than females. Females invest greatly in, um, in reproduction. Males invest minimally in reproduction. Ask any woman that's ever had a kid whether or not, you know, the old story is if men had, uh, were the ones having children, then dot, 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 there's all these jokes that end that line, okay? I.e. nothing would look the way it looks like. The um, What the truth is, is that it isn't that one is better than the other or more noble or anything else. The truth is, is that women are designed by nature to be vastly more selective. They are, they are designed by nature to be extremely careful. They're designed by nature to guard their sexuality like it's gold, okay? The uh, men are designed by nature to spend freely, like don't don't guard it at all, for God's sakes, you know, just have it ready and available to almost any half-assed reasonable opportunity in sight. That's how those two things should be configured, and they are. And so it's going to turn out that you would then expect, if we look at the bell curve of the of, uh, distribution of libido in males and females, you should find two different bell curves that they overlap, but they are actually have a significant separation. They do, okay? So it's gonna turn out that therefore, if you look at the bell curve, the, the middle of the bell curve on a female and the middle of the bell curve on a male, the male has a significantly hotter engine than the female. Interesting, okay?
anything. Now, if we start looking at the fact that bell curves doesn't mean that if you're on one side of the bell curve or another, there's anything wrong with you at all. Yeah, this is natural variation. If you're a guy that's five foot seven, that's nothing wrong with you. If you're a guy that's six foot seven, there's nothing wrong with you. The two, you two people are at different spots on a bell curve, for goodness sakes. If you're average of intelligence or you're above average of intelligence or you're below average of intelligence, there's nothing wrong with you. That just happens to be how much brain tissue you have. If you can run the 50-yard dash in seven seconds or you can run the 50-yard dash in eight seconds or six seconds, there's nothing wrong with any of those people. They're all in the normal ranges of the bell curve. We're not out at the far ends that look strange or odd or potentially dysfunctional in some way. All right. So what if I am a male with extremely low libido? What is that? Answer, pretty rare, okay, pretty rare. So a male in his prime in prime age, physically a 30-year-old male, very low libido, that would be an unusual creature, okay? The one reason people can be very low libido is they can be sick, okay? They can have chronic fatigue syndrome, they can, et cetera. In other words, so th there's three reasons why we may, might have very low sexual interest. Number one, uh, naturally varying low libido. Number two, illness. Number three, we have a uh, not not a, a partnership that that looks that is appealing. All right, we're not going to find those three things inside of the male's life all you know very often. So if we we see a a male that's perfectly healthy, whether he's got a partner or not, if he's got normal libido function, he's having sexual impulses go through that head, you know, every day of the week some at some point the um however there's going to be some males where it's going to be very low um and it's going to be unusual but females it's not going to be that unusual because females by nature human females with a staggering investment in reproduction they should be very guarded with their sexuality they should be very careful with their sexuality the average female has almost no sexual thoughts in her head or 80% of the month. Pretty interesting, right? I've had uh, not, not interactions with them personally, but by virtue of being a psychologist for 40 years, I've talked to people at all ends of every spectrum of anything that you can imagine. And I have known women that had incredibly hot engines, unbelievably hot engines, that makes my very normal middle of the bell curve average C uh, engine look like frigid. Okay, so there are women out there that, by virtue of their natural genetic design, have unbelievably hot engines. Okay, I, I won't give you numbers. I could just tell you that it's completely outside of anybody's normal experience. There are women that uh, have very, very cool engines. In fact, that is far more common than very hot engines in women, as we would expect. Okay, the, the bell curve for a woman's libido anyway is pretty low, very selective uh, and careful. It's essentially DNA guarding. So it's not surprising at all that as we start to tail towards the low end of female libido, that we find very, very tepid engines in a high percentage of women. Uh, David Bass reported 
um, this. And I, I was look, looking uh, sometime in the last two or three months, I was looking for this research and I couldn't find it. Things get lost. But David Bush, uh, who is the world's leading authority on human mating behavior, uh, professor of social psychology at the University of Texas at Austin, um, David Bess reported that 92% of married women at, at menopause or later are completely uninterested in sex in that marriage. Okay. That's that, you know, David Bess being the great evolutionary psychologist authority in mating behavior makes perfect sense to him. It's like, yeah, why would we expect them to have any interest? We wouldn't if we were an evolutionary biologist. Now, what if you are a 72-year-old female who's just hotter than a firecracker? What does that mean? Nothing. It just means that you happen to be on the far side of the bell curve. <laughs> and I'm going to suspect that you always were, right? So there's there's nothing good, bad, or indifferent about where we land on, on places on a bell curve. Uh, it is just a feature of our biology. Three reasons why a given individual, for example, if we're going to take a woman who is writing this, three reasons why we could have low libido. Number one, if it's postmenopausal, we would expect that to be true. Number two, we could have naturally occurring or naturally bearing low libido in the first place, and it was always the case. Number three, neither of those could be true. We could be 35 years old, be perfectly not in menopause, and be perfectly uh, and be have normal libido function and be healthy and be in a partnership where we're not happy with it, okay? And it's uh, once again, now we find a whole nother set of thera therapizing that goes on, which is that, gee, I had a relationship that five years ago or 10 years ago when I was married, it was good, but now 10 years later, I'm not into it, okay? And now it's like, well, we're gonna work on the marriage, think about what's wrong with it. It's like, once again, we, we, we feel the, the culture and the obtuseness and partially potentially patriarchy we find uh, or other sociological, you know, uh, uh, sociological prescriptions being bubbled through human nature. Just because something worked when you were 25 doesn't mean that it works at 35. Just because a relationship has chemistry at for in 1977 doesn't mean it's going to be having chemistry in 1981. So the fact that the people may be still married is irrelevant. Biology doesn't care about whether you're married or not. Biology cares about the subtle individual connections between two individuals, and that that the uh, in specifically women again being careful being egg guarding, basically needing to be biologically defensive about their sexuality, if things aren't really right in a relationship, they can shut down, okay? They're like, no, it isn't, you know, things don't work for me now. Communication isn't right. I don't feel right. I'm not into it, da, 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 all kind of dot, dot, dot. And the, the prescription is, well, if we did the techniques right and we went to a marriage encounter weekend and we reconnected that it's all going to work that's bogus that that is that that could be true but it probably won't be true in other words it's it's the case that very often things go sideways in that direction it's very unusual for things to work well indefinitely in, in this department so 
super long answer, uh, but hopefully what the, the big points we get across are we expect postmenopausal women to have very cool engines, to not be able to lubricate well, to not be into it, not be motivated, okay? Young women who are in their prime are usually only interested during when, the time when they're fertile. That, that, that's for, I don't know, about six days a month. Okay, so they, they have generally no interest, don't have a sexual thought in their head, not motivated at all, even in a good relationship, okay? This is a this is the normal absolute middle of the bell curve for female psychology, so that you can see if we remove the fertility from that psychology, then what would what should we find? Nothing. That that peak of interest should go away. It does. Okay. So um, that may be inconvenient. That may be frustrating. That may lead to conflicts of interest between. Uh, married partners or long-term partners, et cetera, et cetera. But these are these are different and other issues that, that need to be negotiated and thought through between individuals. But one thing that we don't want to do is basically say, oh, that means there's something wrong with that individual. There's nothing even remotely wrong with that individual. Then since there's nothing wrong with them, there's nothing to be fixed. Okay. And that that's where I started getting steamed about about hormonal treatment of females, uh, et cetera. Now, so anyway, that that's where I weigh in on this and and uh, hopefully that was useful for somebody. But how do you solve it? Because like in the racquetball analogy, the person could play with a different friend, but with sex in general, women don't want their husband having sex with other oh, people. Oh, well, okay. So you you are facing inherent interesting conflicts of interest. And so- this is where uh, if we looked at a Stone Age situation, we wouldn't have that problem. Okay, so it's like, well, if she's not interested in that, uh, so, so be it. And now the male's job is to, if they're, if they're sexually motivated, would be to go find, find a partner that is. And so that would mean that those two people wouldn't be best friends and they wouldn't have had children and they still aren't politically aligned, you know what I mean, uh, in, in the village. But it would mean that they, we wouldn't be, she's not going to the witch doctor to try to get her or to the hypnotist to try to get her sexually interested and lubricated when she has no interest in it because her biology is saying no. Okay. Nor, nor would we tell the male, oh, well, in this case, you know, that's it. Like you're, you're out of luck. It's like, no. So what do we find in the modern environment? Because of the institutions of marriage, which are totally a fabrication of, of uh, wealth and private property in the last 10,000 years. They are not part of human nature. Okay, So long-term pair bonds are, but marriages with the rules that we have, no, those are not part of human nature. And so the uh, that we are finding people bumping up against inconvenient and unpleasant and socially uh socially disturbing conflicts and you know what i mean we we can either be uh open open acknowledge those conflicts and try to figure out how to negotiate or you know that is that's what's happening whether we like it or not okay so you know however that works out between any two individuals is the way they work it out they can 
run experiments. They can have conversations about things. They can try to figure out how it is that they would do this. But one thing that you're probably not going to do is you're not going to wind up with those two people playing racquetball and everybody being happy about it. And if we don't play racquetball and then we say, oh, well, then nobody gets to play racquetball. Well, that's a problem, too. So we start getting to the heart of the matter of, of what we're going to call the, the conflicts between individuals and conflicts between individuals of all types. We, we simply have to be, you know, as honest and, and with as much dignity and decency as we can in order to uh, negotiate conflicts that, that, that hopefully wind up with everybody being as well off as we can figure out how. That's all we have can. You, have you ever solved this problem for a client? That's such a big question. This conflict, um, um, this conflict has this highly specific conflict. Um, I I don't recall that that this exact specific the conflicts in general about about relationships and the sexuality and the the conflicts in there. Those are those are fairly common and. Um, Fairly common and dicey and sensitive topics for couples to negotiate, and so that's not something that that um, it, it's not something that 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 get basically gets negotiated without a few you know uh, bruised toenails. So it's it's not entirely comfortable, but. Have I walked couples through such negotiations? Yes. Yes, I have. Okay. Just seems like there's no uh, good solution. So thanks. I so wonder no solution that doesn't involve uh, people making some kinds of concessions. Yes. That's what I mean. Okay. Oh yeah. There's many things in the world that work like that though, AJ. And we, we don't necessarily need to be afraid of that. There are, there are conflicts of interest between individuals that have goodwill on both sides that have to involve uncomfortable concessions. That is part of life. Oh, it's too hard. <laughs> and it's not even remotely fair, like you often but, say. Such is life. Oh, my gosh. All so right, th this question wants you to answer in three sentences. It's ah. actually written that way. So this will be a big challenge for you. It's from Anonymous. And she says, Dr. Lyle, how would you describe the pleasure trap in three sentences or less regarding processed food to genuinely interested people with average to above average intelligence who are ages seven and above? What a challenge. Like a game um, show. I would like say, I mean, that that's such a wide range of people. So I would say that the junk food is like cigarettes. It's like a drug. People like them, but they're not good for them. And so we try to stay away from them so we don't get hooked. That's all. That's how I would do it. Nice. That was the fastest answer in history. Thank you. And we have time for one more. All right, one more. 
This is from Janice. And she says, now that I am vegan, I don't care to have animal products served for holiday meals. When I eat at someone else's house, I bring something for me or to share that with everyone that can eat it. Is it unreasonable for me to insist that any food brought into my house have no animal products and or ask guests that eat ask that guests eat only the food that I prepare? Well, it's not unreasonable at all. In other words, um, you know, th this de depends upon, um, again, the context is everything. So if you're, if you are a business executive or your spouse is a business executive and you have very important investor or financial meetings at your house, then that's absurd and, and that's not going to fly. Uh, if you're running for Congress, uh, and you're you're going to try to impose that on your donors. That's not going to fly. So it all depends upon what do we mean guests? Who are they? Okay. So uh, what what does this all mean? And so if it's if these are you know if this is a recurrent social process in your life, uh, I don't know who these people are that that don't already know where you stand on these things and. If they if they're friends of yours and you just say, hey, you know, it makes me uncomfortable to have any animal food in the house. And so, please, you know, if you're why would a friend be bringing anything? Some potluck? It's like, well, it's potluck. Hey, or, or you know, if I'm going to be cooking. That's it. I don't want any animal food in my house. It's completely and totally 100 percent legitimate to impose that. So, yeah, that's uh, like I said, context is everything. It, it depends on who those people are, what they mean to you, and what resources they hold over your life in, in some kind of a trade process. Remember, all relationships are trade, and human action is designed by nature to acquire resources. So who are those people, and what regard of theirs are do we seek, and for what purpose? And then you have to run a cost-benefit analysis on whether or not, you know, if, if, you're, if you're, you know, a singer and you're wanting a recording contract, and it's the big executives coming to your house to talk it all over with you. And you're going to do that. You're going to cut your own throat. So again, the, 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 if it's a baseline question of, Hey, is it reasonable for me to impose this on my friends? Yeah, it's reasonable. The, uh, it's also reasonable for your friends to say, Hey, you're freaking not, I'm disgusted with you and I'm not going to have anything to do with it. Don't bother inviting me to your house. That's totally fair too. Okay, so that's the in other words, your 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 uh, there there is no right and wrong here. This is you basically saying, you know, th this is how it is that I want things to be, and this is where I feel comfortable, and I know, I know, uh, uh, you know, deep vegan activist people that they are extremely uncomfortable if there's animal food at the table. They don't want any part of it. Uh, it's uh, it, it. They can't help but seeing the animal that that used to be, and feeling like it was butchery and murder to uh, to to have that thing now dead and somebody's eating it. So um, I don't have those kinds of feelings and visions, etc. I am not uncomfortable uh, with other people around eating food, you know, with my house or anywhere else. That's animal origin. I'm I'm aware of the of the of the underlying processes, 
but I am not disgusted and abhorred in a way that a good friend of mine is. Okay. A good friend of mine is not being inherently disagreeable. That's just who she is. She can't stop herself. And so if you are that person, then you, you know, reasonably have to draw that line in your own house. Um, the, uh, but it's also reasonable for people on the other side to have a reaction to you about that. They found out something about you and they may find that to be extremely objectionable and they may consider your, your friendship to not be effectively as worthwhile as they thought it was. So this has to do with the discovery of, you know, what that, you know, what are the underlying dynamics of the personalities in that relationship? That's how that works. Okay. Well, I have a sign in my house that says vegan food only. So there you go. Yeah, exactly right. And you you have scripted your social environment that the only people that are coming into that house are vegan and that, that are comfortable with that attitude. And they are all perfectly happy together, just like a you know b- bunch of little ducklings that are all happy splashing around together. That's what happens in AJ's house. And nobody even thinks twice about it. When I I did once when my uncle was alive, he was in his 90s and he came over and he pulled out some string cheese from his, you know, pocket. And he's in a week. I mean, I let it. I let it slide. Let that one slide. I did let that one slide. But nobody's coming in here with McDonald's. I can tell you that. Got it. Yeah. Thanks, Dr. Lyle. This was a lot of fun. All right, AJ. Thanks for having me. And we'll see you again in a month. Can't wait. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back for a bonus show at two o'clock today. Look what we're going to be tasting on the air. These are all vegan and SOS free. And we're going to tell you how to get them for the holidays. You want me to save you some, Dr. Lyle? I'll just take a little bite. All right. Maybe save Okay. Me. Great. All right. Thanks. I'll take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.